0: I'm pleased today to uh, introduce our uh, guest speaker. She's actually not even a guest because she's part of the family. Reverend Lauren Ng uh, grew up in Philadelphia and um, ha- worked after uh, attending undergrad there, worked with the uh, American Baptist uh, Church's denomination. And then um, she and her husband Daniel felt the call to ministry and moved across the country to um, to the West Coast here where... Uh, Lauren earned her Master's of Divinity in 2005 from uh, American Baptist Seminary of the West. She was ordained in 2006 and was called as Associate Pastor of First Chinese Baptist Church in San Francisco and served there from 2005 to 2009. She has also been a part of this American Baptist denomination in many, many ways. She currently serves on the Board of Directors for the Home Mission Board for that denomination and the Board of Trustees for one of their colleges. She is a passionate person for justice for God's word, for God's people. She is spe- a speaker all over the nation uh, on a variety of topics. Uh, she's the bomb, is the deal. And we have her here. She and her husband Daniel have sage and story in canon in our church. She is a, a full time mom on top of the full time other work that she's doing. And uh, so please join me in welcoming Le- Reverend Lauren Ng. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jeff, for that introduction. Good morning. Good morning. My um, professor for my preaching class in seminary once told us that if there's ever a time that you get up to preach and you're not the slightest bit nervous, then you probably should sit down and not be in the business of preaching again. And he told us that after 50 years of ministry, even now when he gets up to preach, His left knee turns to his right knee and says, let's shake. (laughs) So my knees are having that conversation right now. But it really is an awesome privilege and an awesome task to share the Word of God with the people of God. So I thank you for the opportunity. So several weeks ago when Pastor Jeff called me up to discuss this new series... Markers, the well-worn path toward a life in Christ. He told me about the seven deadly sins and the seven corresponding virtues, and I just thought, man, this is heavy stuff. So out of the seven, I'm pretty excited that I got assigned kindness as the (laughs) counter virtue to envy. You see, pride was considered the worst sin of all by the Catholic Church. Sloth would have occupied hours of my time Googling images of cute marsupials. And lust, well, I'm way too new to this stage to take on lust, so thank you to Ben and Art and Jeff for sparing me. But you know, you've already heard over the past several weeks that this really isn't a series about sin or morality or what not to do. Rather, this is a series about the life of Jesus, about the markers or characteristics of His ministry that Christians have modeled for centuries out of obedience to him. And these markers help us to know that we're on the way toward becoming his fully devoted lifelong followers. See, when we do as Jesus did, we find ourselves on that well-worn path toward right living. Now, I consider myself a fairly kind person, like any good kid growing up in the 80s and the 90s. You know, I jumped onto the bandwagon of the random acts of kindness movement Pretty sure I had the bumper sticker. And then that 2000 film, um, Pay It Forward, considered that to be a seminal work in the development of modern social consciousness. And I say that I do all right. You know, I'm generally a kind person, day to day, I'm in a good mood. You know, I say please and thank you, hold the door open for people and give up my seat. I remember birthdays and anniversaries and I always choose donation over credit when shopping with my reusable bags. Basically, I'm a generally kind person when it doesn't cost me much to be one. But this is the type of kindness, you know, that I think falls under the category of being nice. Do you remember in high school when somebody would ask you to sign their yearbook and you didn't really know the person that well? So they never bullied you, but they never put their neck out for you either, so you write in your inscription, you're really nice, have an awesome summer. But I think it's safe to say that there's more to being a Christ follower than just being nice. You know, kindness matters just as much, if not more, when it costs us something, namely self-denial or what you may have heard described as a dying to ourselves. So today we look at this heavenly virtue of kindness as it was exemplified by Jesus. And by witnessing him in action, we get the opportunity to examine our own leanings, and to press in toward his instead. We've been examining these seven heavenly virtues as they stand opposite to the seven deadly sins, and we've framed these virtues as markers along the well-worn path of Christian discipleship. Some of you may remember Pastor Jeff's introduction to the series last month, and then Pastor Art revisited that for us a little bit last week. And Jeff used that illustration of hiking through a boulder field and knowing that you're on the right path by the, the Karens, that those human-made stacks of stones left by those who have traveled the path before you. And we looked at Jeremiah 6.16, where the prophet said, This is what the Lord says. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. These markers of chastity, charity, diligence, kindness, and in the next couple of weeks we'll get to forgiveness, humility, and self-restraint. See, these are, are rooted in ancient ground. They have been the signposts of the righteous Christian path for generations. They are the markers that we see ahead of us to aim for, and they are also the markers by which we confirm that we're headed in that right direction. And by keeping these markers front of mind as we study the life and the personhood of Jesus, then we gain insights for how we can stay on that path and become more and more the people God created us to be. Now, to recap, neither the seven deadly sins nor the seven heavenly virtues appear as explicit lists in the Bible. The former originated in the 4th century Catholic Church, and then both lists gained popularity throughout the Middle Ages, but there are biblical antecedents that make them feel familiar. For instance, we know that envy can be traced back to the 10th commandment, right? You shall not covet your neighbor's house or wife or servant or animals or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So even though these lists of deadly sins and virtues don't appear explicitly in the Bible, they are still familiar territory. And there are countless stories in the Bible that touch on all of them envy and kindness notwithstanding. You can imagine how many choices I had for looking for a passage or a scripture passage that would touch on kindness and on Jesus' propensity for it. And out of the four gospels, I thought Luke was a reasonable place to start. You know, we know that the gospel writers all portrayed the person of Jesus in a different way. So Matthew's Jesus is the story of, of prophecy fulfilled, and Mark's Jesus is enigmatic and mysterious. John's Jesus is the Word made flesh. And Luke's Jesus is kind and compassionate and a friend to outcasts. So it follows that students of Luke's gospel can learn what it means to live in obedience to a Lord who is indeed Savior to all. So that's how I landed on this well-known story from Jesus' ministry, the story of Zacchaeus found in the Gospel of Luke as our focus for our time together this morning. See, in this story... Jesus doesn't just show mercy, but shows unbridled kindness under circumstances most of us would probably deem too costly. Will you stand with me for the reading of that scripture and feel free to follow along in your Bibles if you'd like. The passage comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of God. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. And he wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, Oh, there Jesus goes again, gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. May God bless the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So there are four main insights that we can gain from Jesus' demonstration of kindness towards this wealthy tax collector. And they become guiding directives for us in our own pursuit of kindness based on Jesus' example. Because we all have that tendency in life, right, to veer off the path and to say, you know, Lord, I see that ancient path, but I'm not going to walk in it. No thanks. And I'm hoping that these insights into the personhood of Jesus are going to help us to, to keep that marker of kindness in clear view. So the first insight. Show kindness to whomever God puts in your path, not just those of your choosing. I love how Scripture says that Jesus simply looked up saw Zacchaeus in that tree, and then immediately spoke to him. You know, he didn't assess him first to determine whether or not he was worthy of his love. The fact that Jesus is God and knew exactly who Zacchaeus was, knew his character and his innermost thoughts, that just makes this even more significant. Imagine being Jesus, right? Walking around and knowing in all his omnipotence, knowing everything about everyone he met, and yet he withholds kindness from no one a woman touches his hem, a man lays at the edge of a pool, a woman draws water from the well. Jesus never withholds kindness from any of them. We, on the other hand, prefer to show kindness to those of our choosing. We assess and we take stock of every person we meet. Look at verse 2. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. See, these are the labels, the sort of descriptors that we run through our heads whenever we meet someone. So first, there's a man. Insert gender judgment there. His name is Zacchaeus. Insert cultural judgment there. He's a tax collector. Insert occupational judgment there. And he's wealthy. Insert socioeconomic judgment there. And you know, the crowds who witnessed this interaction were probably familiar with Jesus' prior admonishments against the rich. So, it must have surprised them even more then to see Jesus show Zacchaeus such unhesitant kindness despite the labels that society had given him. You know, I think of my own proclivities that cause me to withhold kindness from whomever God puts in my path. I think about the person I judge from across the room The way that I draw conclusions about somebody after a single encounter or even just hearsay. The way that I step cautiously around the people whom I'd rather not deal with. Anybody with me on this? Yet Jesus simply looked up and saw Zacchaeus, saw the fullness and the wholeness of him through divine eyes, and kindness easily followed. The second insight we can gain from this story is to show kindness even if it doesn't bolster our own social standing. For sure, you know, the crowds who witnessed Zacchaeus' awkward ascent up that sycamore tree were judging him every inch along the way. Here was a grown man, small in stature, running and then quickly scaling this tree. And the undignified nature of the act is actually underscored by the kind of tree that Zacchaeus climbed. You know, the sycamore fig tree was known to yield an inferior type of fig that was typically consumed by the poor. So this must have been quite a sight, seeing Zacchaeus scale this thing. You know, it's one of those times when you, you can't stand to watch such an act of humiliation, but you also can't pull your eyes away. But Zacchaeus was already an unpopular guy, even before he climbed that tree. Remember, he was a chief tax collector which meant that he was a contract employee of the Roman government. And he would be asked to pay that full contract in advance, and then he would employ other people to collect those monies with the intent of turning a profit. So, to his fellow Jews, he was treated as an outcast. And they were assumed, tax collectors were assumed to be dishonest people who were considered traitors, right, for, cons- for being conspiring or conspirators with the Gentile oppressors. But, you know, Jesus never let the unpopularity of a person deter him from showing kindness. In fact, we know the exact opposite to be true, don't we? Jesus had an affinity for the disenfranchised, and maybe affinity isn't even strong enough of a word. It is to these whom Jesus promises the kingdom. It's to these he specifically declared he came to seek and to save. And Zacchaeus' social standing, being an outcast who had just humiliated himself by climbing up this tree, didn't deter Jesus from showing him kindness, even though Jesus knew he would be judged by the crowds for doing so. You know, I remember a pivotal moment in God's development of my own personal character. I was a sophomore in high school and had just gained entry to a really elite, exclusive social group. You know, these were the girls who threw the best parties and wore the best clothes and dated all the cutest boys. And and as I cruised down the hallway with my new crew, I stopped and I waved and I said hello to an old acquaintance, a quiet girl who I'd spent a lot of time with freshman year. And before even realizing what I'd done, I was swiftly reprimanded. It was like a scene out of Mean Girls girl turned to me and said, Don't you ever say hello to her again. Understand? Apparently, associating with those who did nothing to bolster our own self-image was a no-no. So I was at a crossroads, and I could see that Karen of piled rocks ahead, that marker of kindness along the well-worn path. But you know, I also saw that other path hovering awfully close by, tempting me to be the envy of the school and to maintain my social standing. So I had to make a choice. Let's just say I wasn't invited to many cool parties after that. Jesus showed kindness even when it cost him his social standing, and he did it again and again and again, even to the point of his death on the cross. The third insight we can gain from Jesus' story with Zacchaeus is to show kindness with a genuine intent to be in community. Jesus went deep. You know, upon seeing Zacchaeus up in that tree, he could have jumped to verse 9 and just been done with it. But upon seeing him, he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And Jesus was a busy man, right? I mean, he had throngs of people waiting to meet him and and learn from him and be healed by him. And he was fully aware of and obedient to the story of salvation that his father had set into motion. More than anybody, Jesus had places to be and people to see. And yet, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. I was recently at a meeting for a Christian organization for which I serve on the board of directors. And our executive director had invited a young woman to come preach at our opening session on that first night. And her invitation you know, was based on her well-known achievements and her clear call to ministry. But she was also invited to speak as part of our organization's emphasis on emerging preachers under the age of 35. And friends, I used to be in this category. <laughs> but sadly, that ship has sailed. Apparently, I have fully emerged. <laughs> See, I'm no longer called on in meetings to tell the older generations of Baptist leaders what the young people are thinking. Now they look past me and write onto younger leaders like this talented woman who came to deliver the word that evening. And the young preacher's glowing reputation preceded her. Even before I laid eyes on her, I knew from others that she was not only in her mid-twenties, but she was charismatic, dynamic, a social activist, a masterful preacher who was mentored by a prominent Baptist pastor, and oh, by the way, she was about to defend her doctoral thesis and earn her PhD. (laughs) I am not proud to admit that I was envious of this woman before I'd even met her. With envy as the driving factor, see, I had no desire to really get to know her. Envy was a roadblock to entering into genuine community, with this sister in Christ and in ministry. And thankfully, I was convicted by that spirit, as the spirit is known to do. And I remembered being a new pastor in my 20s, and what it felt like to me when a woman further along in ministry stopped to tell me that she believed in me and that she witnessed God's gifts in me. So guys, again, I saw that pile of stones, that Karen of kindness along the path, and I went up to the gifted young adult. And extended my hand. The fourth and final insight we can gain from Jesus' example with Zacchaeus is to show kindness that is sacrificial. Jesus conferred dignity upon the wealthy tax collector by the simple act of entering his home. He risked judgment and rejection by doing so. And then his act of sacrificial love is honored by Zacchaeus with a sacrificial act of his own. Look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay it back four times. See, compelled by the sacrificial kindness shown him by Jesus when he entered his home, Zacchaeus sees the marker along the path and follows. Now, sacrificial kindness, it's costly, and it's kind of a pain. You know, guys, you'd think that as somebody with a heart for ministry, I would uh, have no problem with sacrifice. But I'm totally the kind of person who, you know, upon breaking a chocolate bar in half, will inspect both sides and kind of slyly hand the smaller portion over to my husband. Sorry, honey. But seriously, sacrificial kindness, okay, compelled by the ultimate sacrifice Jesus made for us on the cross is the takeaway for us as we seek to be obedient to his example. Two Christmases ago, my my parents left to spend the holiday break with my brother and his family in North Carolina. And so Daniel and the kids and I, we were left to celebrate on our own. And without that usual excitement of Grandma and Grandpa coming over to open presents and share in Christmas dinner, I decided to work on a project with the kids. So we compiled 20 bags of useful items to pass out to homeless persons on Christmas morning. And we also filled thermoses with hot apple cider to distribute. And so on that Christmas morning, we got up, got out of our pajamas, got dressed, and we spent a couple of hours handing out these items and having some good conversation with the folks in Albert Park in San Rafael. It was an act of sacrificial kindness that had the bonus of granting our family great joy. So this past Christmas, my kids all asked if we were going to do it again. I had not counted on them wanting this to be an annual Christmas tradition. (laughs) See, this year, my parents were in town, and we had to get through opening presents first so that I could start on Christmas dinner, and there were cardboard boxes to clear away and pies to bake. And let's not forget that the weather this year was not nearly as good as it was last year. So, kids, I said, as they looked back at me with disappointment in their eyes, I'm sorry, it's just not convenient this time. Kindness that costs us. Kindness that requires the sacrifice of self-denial, of dying to oneself, of putting the needs of others before our own. It's tough. It is not going to just come naturally. It's going to require obedience and the constant, relentless pursuit of the Savior and the things of His heart. And Jesus is the ultimate example, isn't he? I mean, who, who better to show us what it looks like to put someone ahead of ourselves? When I was a kid and would and get hurt, my mom used to always say to me, baby girl, if I could take away your pain and put it on myself, I would. And I never understood that until I became a mom myself. Am I right, moms? I've said that same thing countless times now, and I mean it every single time. My baby, my child, if I could take your pain upon myself, I would. I wouldn't even hesitate. Do you see the glimpses we get of Jesus's astounding love for us? So, when Jeff told me I'd be preaching on kindness as it relates to envy, you know, I immediately got excited. Everybody loves kindness. That's easy. And envy, I know all about envy. And then I was like, oh, I know all about envy. Let's start with what envy is not envy is not the same as jealousy. Jealousy comes from the Greek word "zelos," the same root word from which we get zeal or zealous. And this is the word being used when we read, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. See, this jealousy is protective and possessive, showing that jealousy can sometimes be a good thing. But envy is never good. It comes from the Greek thonos, meaning the feeling of ill will, the negative energizing of somebody with an embittered mind. Proverbs 14.30 says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy, envy rots the bones. So envy is not a synonym for jealousy. The other thing envy is not is a form of admiration. See, envy doesn't appreciate or lift up the godly qualities or the spiritual gifts in another person. The Apostle Paul did encourage the Philippians, saying, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us admiration and imitation of worthy mentors, those are good things. But envy's different. Envy seeks to to tear down the gifts of others and looks at fault at every turn. It's sort of like when you think you admire a woman who seems to have it all, right? She's got the great figure and the beautiful home and the amazing career and the rich spiritual life, but then you try to make yourself feel better by saying, oh, I bet her husband's a jerk and her kids are monsters. She seems perfect, but I bet she's actually really miserable. Envy is not the same as admiration. See, kindness, kindness is an expression of love that seeks the welfare of others. Envy is the antithesis of love. It seeks its own desires at the expense of others. But sacrificial, costly kindness, even in the face of envy, is possible. Let's take, for instance, the legacy of envy passed down through the bloodline of Jacob and Esau, Rachel and Leah, and Joseph and his brothers. Some of you know this story. After Joseph's envious brother sold him into slavery, he rises in the ranks to become governor of Egypt. And when his brothers, who deemed Joseph to be dead, leave their barren land in Canaan to go seek help in Egypt, they find themselves unknowingly groveling at the feet of their abandoned brother. Joseph eventually makes his identity known to them, saying in Genesis 45, yes, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Don't worry or blame yourselves for what you did. God is the one who sent me ahead of you to save lives. Now hurry back and tell my father that his son Joseph says, God has made me ruler of Egypt. Come here as quickly as you can. You'll live near me in the region of Goshen with your children and grandchildren and all your animals and everything else you own, and I'll take care of you there during the next five years of famine. Joseph had every reason to ignore his brother's suffering. Right? We might even say that he had every justification to enact vengeance. Driven by envy, his brothers had robbed him of everything he'd ever known, and yet Joseph shows kindness, a love that is costly and that seeks the welfare of others even at the expense of getting the revenge due him. Guys, I can't even get cut off at a four-way stop without raising my hands in the air and going, ''Seriously?'' But how about stopping and taking a breath? remembering it's not all about me, about justice for me, about being right or making sure others get what they deserve. If Joseph can show kindness to his brothers who left him for dead, can't I put aside my own self-interests even for a moment in order to show kindness? See, kindness that costs us isn't always about paying something out. It can also cost us in the sense of of holding back our instincts to act out of self-interest. The payment, so to speak, can be in the form of self-denial. When I was pastoring at a church in San Francisco Chinatown, we had both an English-speaking and a Cantonese-speaking congregation, and every now and then, we'd have a joint worship service. And while it was nice to all be together, these services would drag on and on because everything had to be translated, even the entire sermon message. And I remember being at a staff meeting, and all of us associate pastors, we were groaning about the fact that the senior pastor, who happened to be my dad, wanted to plan another joint service. And we argued that nobody wants to sit through a double long service, especially when you can't even understand half of what's being said. But my dad, he rebuked us. He reminded us that being in community can be messy, and frustrating, and inconvenient. And I'll never forget when he said that our joint services, as annoying and frustrating as they may be, are a picture of the kingdom. When we deny ourselves in order to be in community with other people and with the spirit, we are God's kingdom realized here on earth. There's an analogy here to the current brokenness in our nation and our world, isn't there? You know, I, for one, have had to constantly hold my tongue and stay my fingers from reacting to the divisiveness that we've all seen on social media, for instance. You know, and I know a lot of folks who are quick to unfriend anyone who doesn't believe what they believe. It can be tempting, I know, but, you know, Jesus didn't go around unfriending people who disagreed with him or who cost him too much time or energy. Yes, he rebuked those who stood as roadblocks to the gospel message, but in the end, with his death on the cross, Jesus withheld kindness from no one. So friends, we will not live in a way that we unfriend people. We will not unfriend the man begging on the street corner. We will not unfriend the lady who cuts us off at the four-way stop. We will not unfriend the family who raises their kids with different morals than we do. We will not unfriend our unfriendly next door neighbors. We will not unfriend the person whose, whose skin color or accent or clothing differs from us. We will not unfriend the person who prays to a different God than us. We will not unfriend the person who prays to no God at all. We will not unfriend the person who practices a different Christianity than us. We will not unfriend the person who loves differently from us. We will not unfriend the, unfriend the person who, guys, voted differently from us. We will not unfriend the addict, the convicted, the incarcerated. We will not unfriend the immigrant, the refugee, the widow, and the orphan. And we will not unfriend those who make us nervous or uncomfortable or even scared. You know, others can and will do that to us. But we, sisters and brothers, we're followers of Jesus the Lord. We walk the well-worn path. We follow in the footsteps of the one who withholds kindness from no one. We will show kindness even when it costs us. The other day, my my daughter's story begged me to pull over so she could hand one of our baggies to a homeless man sleeping in the corner of a building. See, we keep these little bags of, of goodies, of clean socks and granola bars and toiletry items in our car, and the kids love to pass them out. And on that particular day, I was late to pick up my other daughter from the school bus, and I really wanted a latte before I got there. And, you know, the corner where the man was sleeping, it wasn't a real convenient place to pull over. And I actually had the thought. I actually had the thought. Please don't let Story see that man. Because it's just really not a convenient time. It's most often in those moments when I'm about to act in disobedience to my Lord that he makes himself known. Mom, Mom! There's a homeless man. Can we pull over and give him one of our bags, please, Mom? And I looked back at my daughter's story. You know what I saw? I saw Jesus looking back at me. And I chose obedience in that moment. I don't always choose it, trust me. But when I do, I find myself living kindly and modeling the way of my Savior. See, kindness can be costly. Jesus is the ultimate example of this being true. He calls us to show kindness to whoever's in our path. He calls us to show kindness even if it doesn't bolster our own social standing. He calls us to show kindness in a way that that brings us into genuine and real community with one another. And he calls us to show kindness that is sacrificial, even to the point that we will regard someone else's life before our own. And so we come to the table this morning knowing that pursuit of these, these virtues, these markers, isn't simply obedience to a set of rules. Rather, these are the characteristics that, that we embody, that we naturally embody when we are a people obedient to Christ. And, you know, we're not obedient to him out of fear or shame or guilt, but we're obedient because he who first showed us kindness has captured our hearts And we have never known such abundant, extravagant love as this. Let us pray. Oh God, we have seen and we have felt your unrestrained, unrestricted kindness through the gift of your Son. And though we often stray from the path, Lord, you invite us to come sit at your table again and again. May your Spirit fill us as we live into this vision that you have, that we would become more and more your people. In your name we pray, amen.